Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with a very special guest, Paul Sullivan. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the work you did the New York Times. I've loved the Thin Green Line. I've been recommending it to everybody on my team and my family. I'm planning on making it like required reading for my kids when they get into the high school world. And we're going to get into both those things as well as what you're focused on today. But it's a quick kind of bio. Before starting the Company of Dads in 2021, Paul was a journalist for 25 years the last 13 at the New York Times, where he wrote the Wealth Matters column and oversaw several special sections. He's the author of two books, Clutch, Why Some People Excel Under Pressure and Others Don't, and The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. So I want to start with the column. You know, you closed it down last year, but you wrote 600 columns over your time there. How did you manage to come up with the content? Like, where'd the ideas (laughs) come? I mean, I don't, I, don't have, I don't think I've ever had 608 decent ideas in my life. I'll tell you this story. When I was when I wrote, was about to write the 500th column, and I realized I was on like 498. I pitched the idea of, you know, why don't I look back? Why don't I look back? And what did I, what did I learn in, in 500 columns? Like that's sort of a, a, a milestone. And I was really happy that when I went back and I reread the bulk, all, I skimmed all the columns. I didn't you know, reread all, but when I went and looked at all, they weren't very repetitive. So I was like, well, okay, that makes me feel a little better. I didn't know if like every three years I'd just say, hey, let me write about this. I mean, the theme was, there are always constant themes, like anything to do, anything newsworthy usually had to do with with tax changes. People, it was called the Wealth Matters column, it was geared at our most affluent readers at the New York Times. So anything to do with estate issues, tax changes, they were a recurring theme. Another recurring theme was anything to do with kids and money. 
those are always the most, you know, popular story. But I mean, one of the things is that I, I think being a columnist at the New York Times is sort of like, or being a journalist in general, is like being a, a small business owner. Like when you start a small business and you need capital to grow the business, it is really hard to get the capital. Once you've succeeded and that business is humming along, any bank will lend to you. Banks are happy to lend to you. They're happy to help you out. And that's kind of what it was like. I was 25 years as a journalist. So those first, you know, two, three, four, five years at obscure publications, nobody was calling me back. By the time I'd worked my way to the New York Times, I had a whole Rolodex of people. And so one of the things I did was every Thursday, you know, pre-COVID, but every Thursday, I would make sure I sort of set up a day in which I would have as many meetings as I could shoehorn into that day. I could have a lunch. I could have a a coffee after the lunch, you know, or a coffee before the lunch, coffee after the lunch, I get a breakfast, like whatever. And I just would meet people. And my rule was I didn't want to leave a meeting without an idea. And so I think the secret to 608 columns is oftentimes I had ideas in the hopper. They may not be the best ideas, but they certainly were suitable ideas for the columns. So if I had a really dry week, you know, I had something to work on. So I wasn't starting every week from a, a standing start. And I didn't appreciate, I, I read, I went back and reread your last column in, in preparing. And, you know, like I said, I've been a big fan of the column. I, I read them fairly religiously, but I didn't appreciate the rigidity of your schedule in order to create that type of content. And because I think for many people in their minds, writing a column is a, a creative endeavor and, you know, you get this inspiration, but you are very disciplined and you're, you're, it was very much Groundhog Day in terms of week to week, day to day, what you're doing, where you were. You mentioned Thursdays, you were in the city doing meetings, you know, Friday, yeah. et cetera. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about what your actual day to day looked like? So one of the things I'm most proud of, not just with the column, but in life in general, is I usually make a mistake just once. And after I make that mistake, I think, okay, let's try not to do that again. And so when I first started the column at the end of 2008, just as Bernie Madoff was, was arrested, I just was, you know, sort of, I was 35 years old. I was drunk with excitement. Like, how can I be a New York Times columnist? This was, that was my dream as a kid growing up. And so I was horribly disorganized. I would bounce, I live in New Canaan, Connecticut. So I'd bounce in and out of the city all the time. I'd have a meeting here and there. And then every week was a scramble. And I thought to myself, this is unsustainable. What does it take to do this in the right way? And then what it came was, you know, Monday and Tuesday, even before people work from home, I work from home. Monday and Tuesday, I would work in, in a version of this. We had another house before this house, but a version of my home office that you can see behind me. And I'd make calls because if I was at the New York Times, I would have just sat there and made calls anyway. Then Wednesday was my day to write. I'd file the column Wednesday night. And that's why every Thursday I'd be in the city for a series of meetings. And I'd swing by the Times, talk to my editor. We had edited it. And then Friday would be a day to sort of get a jump on, on the week ahead. And it, it worked and it needed to be that way. But boy, did it stink if something came up in my life on a Wednesday. Like it wasn't, it, it was really hard. It, there was no flexibility to it. So if, 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 you know, somebody asked me to go do something fun on a Friday or my kids want me to do something fun on a Friday, that was easy. I could do that. But if it was on a, you know, Wednesday at five o'clock when my column was due, it was always, that, that was the Groundhog Day version of it. Every Wednesday at five o'clock was always stressful, but, but it worked. It worked to, to terrific effect and it led you, like I mentioned in the intro and then before we went live, The Thin Green Line is just a terrific book and your work at the column led you to eventually write that book. Could you maybe tell a bit more about what the impetus was there, the origination story behind the book itself? You know, as somebody who who wrote about money, but I never really considered myself a personal finance, right? I consider myself somebody who wrote about money and 
somebody who wrote about wealthy people and I live in a very wealthy town. Most people would consider my family affluent. So it, it was sort of almost more anthropological. And I thought about, you know, how do you sort of explain this world and the decisions that very wealthy people make to, to a broader audience in a, in a fair, honest way. And at the same time, how do I write things that actually add value to the life of my more affluent readers? And when it came to money, you know, so many personal finance books tell you what not to do. And, you know, the easy example is, you know, if, if you don't order a Starbucks latte five days a week and save that, whatever they cost now, five bucks and put it in the bank, $25 a week times 52 weeks times 35 years, you'll have, you know, X millions of dollars more in the bank than you would otherwise, which is, of course, 100% true, but it's 100% not sustainable and 200% not fun. And so I wanted to write a book we talked about, The Thing Green Line, that talked about really what I thought were the only four things that you could do with money. No matter how much or little money you had, there are only four things you can do with money. You can save it, you can spend it, you can give it away, or you can think about it. And that's it. And those are the only four things you could do. And I wanted to take that, and that's the framework of the book, it's divided into those those sections. But then beyond that, coming back to the Starbucks latte idea, I wanted to make it about choice because I'm a huge student of behavioral finance. And I thought, you know, in life, if we have choice, then we're allowed to get that latte if we want. If we know that in, in spending that 25 bucks a week, perhaps we can't spend 25 bucks on something else. We have to offset that cost doing it. So the whole framework of the book then became one of choice. Because if you think about it, you know, most personal finance books are like diets. They tell you what not to do and then you can sustain it through January and February. And then by March, you're back, you know, binge eating chocolate Rice Krispies at, at, at midnight. I wanted to do, take more of an approach from my, my first book, in which I talked to a lot of guys in the military. And that was to create a plan. Know that knowing that, you know, plans are essential, but, but plans fail. And so the fingering line is really a plan for how you you know, do those four things with money, knowing that plan will fail and, and you have to revise that plan as you go along. Yeah, and the, and the context and the construct is around this conversation with the founder of Tiger 21. We've had some Tiger folks on the show, incredible organization, but a very challenging process to go through where you're opening up the kimono and showing everybody what your asset allocation is, what your P&L statement looks like, you know, cash balance statement. And some very difficult conversations ensue from that. I'm curious, you know, you you reference this in a book, this obvious distinction between being rich and wealthy and what happened to the washout of 08. Do you think we're entering into another washout period where people will realize that they were behaving as if they were wealthy and they were really merely only rich? Well, fortunately or not, I've, I've been doing something else the past year, so I haven't been paying as close attention to it. But, but I, you know, so I'm not going to pine on that, but I, I do want to make one point there where you talk about wealthy versus rich for readers who who heard that. I think that's a key distinction to make, whether or not we get, we're going into a washout period, as you call it, or we're going into a mild recession, a bad recession, who knows? But one of the key, the, the line in the thin green line was that people sort of imagine the S&P 500 since 1982 and look at it today. It's a lot higher than it was in 1982, but it's not a straight line. It goes up and down and, and there are parts where it goes down a lot and in parts where it goes up a lot. And so the construct of that difference between wealth and rich is people who are on top of that line, top of that green S&P 500. Those are people who are wealthy, whether they're at the very bottom, meaning they don't have a ton of money or at the very top, meaning they have you know, money for generations because they have choice. They're the people who have made choices in life and therefore they can choose what to do with their money within their means. If you know they're making 100 grand a year, they have different choices than, than somebody who's 
you know, worth, uh, you know, 10 billion on the other end. And everybody on the other side, they're either rich or poor. So you could be a high earner at the very top of that thin green line. But if you're super leveraged, if you've made bad decisions, then, you know, chances are you're, you're not going to come out ahead. And so if, if, you know, in your, in your question, if there is a washout, we'll know who's wealthy and who's rich by, you know, who gets washed out because they're, they're over leveraged and they're not able to keep up with, with whatever capital calls they have. If, if things really go very, very badly. Yeah. It really is. Obviously, there's no dollar figure there, but it's that sense of control and mindset and culture that you have within your own personal household around money, which I think was hugely impactful you know, for me and, and why I would encourage people to go check it out and why I think I'm going to have my children when they're older, to be honest with you. Some good life lessons there. And talk to us about you know actually closing the column. It was partially from COVID, but I'm sure it was a long time coming. You can only write this thing for so long. What led you to to finally leave the times and, and do well, the company of dads? Well, the, the, the running joke was, you know, the first couple of years, I thought, you know, everybody has imposter syndrome when they get their dream job. And like, well, at some point, they're going to find me out. That's going to be the end. And I'll just get up and leave and say thank you because it was wonderful. Well, once you get to 13 years, you're like, I guess they're not going to they're not going to kick me to the curb. I, I guess this is going pretty well. But that was, you know, the 2021, October 2021 was my last column. But it was really sort of, you know, 15 months before that, COVID started. And we were very fortunate in that we were in a, a friend's three-bedroom condominium in Delray Beach, Florida, where we had gone for what we thought was going to be our kids' eight or nine-day spring break. And we ended up staying there for 10 weeks and we didn't want to come home and they would not, the condo board would not let him come down because it was only people sort of in the bubble. And so there we are, three kids trying to do remote school, my wife and I trying to work. I'm as busy as I possibly can be at the New York Times because it's a crisis. We have to explain what's happening. We don't even know what's what's going on. At least if it's a financial crisis, you have a, a sort of framework in which you can sort of apply, but it's a global pandemic that's having impacts on people's health and personal finances. It's impossible. And I think, as I said, you know, offline, my wife works in asset management. She has her own asset management business. And so she is worried then, like, what's going to happen? Is this going to, you know, be a 2008 all over again? Or are things going to plummet? How do I make rational choices around, you know, my business and, and my employees? And it was in that moment that I really started thinking of the idea for the company of dads. And the reason is, since my wife started her firm in 2013, when our daughters were four and one, and they're now five, 10 and 13, because of my super rigid schedule at the New York Times, I took on a role that I call the lead dad. And this is something we always just talked about, Laura and me, I, you know, you're the lead dad. And essentially, it's the go-to parent. But fast forward to COVID, and we're there, and I was like, you know what? You know, I had a, I've got a really great life, great friends, great schedule, but I'm here sort of isolated. And this is the first time where I realized the type of parent that I am doesn't have a community. If you're a go-to-work dad, you go to the office, you take the train, you drive you have your community. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you've got your kid's school, you got your house of worship, maybe you have a hobby, you have your community. Every town in America reaches out to working moms because they don't want to let those working moms go. They don't want to feel excluded. But if you're the lead dad, that go-to parent, whether you work full-time, part-time, or devote all your time to your kids, and you're, you're a man, you're the lead dad, you don't have a community. You know, you just don't. Caregiving is typically done by moms or or paid caregivers. And so that was a sort of, you know, aha moment where I thought, I think I think there's something here and I don't know why a community doesn't exist. There are plenty of groups for fathers who are divorced, who have drug problems, who are, you know, whatever, but there wasn't a sort of 
super positive omnibus community. And, and frankly, the model for it was actually a golf community called the Random Golf Club that was started by Eric Anders Lang and his partner, Evan Roosevelt, to essentially bring in the 80% of, of people who love golf but will never play at private clubs. And I thought, wow, they, had, they identified a, a white space and were super successful. I'm identifying what I later found out after I did some research, you know, the, the 40 to 45 fathers out of 120, the 40 to 45 million fathers out of the 120 million fathers in America who are the dads and bringing them together and showing them that this different. And so COVID was that moment to think about it. And I went to the Times in August of, of 21. They were super supportive and they let me write a column, last column in October 21, in which I, I sort of looked back and then I got to sort of look forward and say, hey, this is what I'm about to go and do. Yeah, it was fascinating doing the research before the interview, checking out the website and the content you've created. So I'm 40 years old. I'm a father of two boys, nine and six, entrepreneur. And I've talked about this with people my in my peer group. It is hard, I think, with today, our generation of fathers is expected to be a really good husband, a really good dad, and also a very good professional. And hitting all three of those during the prime of your child rearing and your career, I think for the first time in modern history, you've been expected to do all three of those things. I think before it was one or two and you could kind of float in and out. It just seems like, I don't know, as somebody living through this stage, really overwhelming. And there aren't a lot of resources. And frankly, there aren't a lot of safe spaces where you can even talk about this because most moms don't want to at least my wife doesn't really want to interact with this narrative, but it's just the truth. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are seeking this type of community. Yeah. I mean, it, it's that like any community, you, you, you want to sort of, you know, normalize what, what people are doing and you want to sort of end it and do your loneliness. And look, what I have with this community, are, do these, would did these same people exist in 2019? Of course it did. But COVID was what allowed me to see them. And what I think a lot of them, COVID allowed them to see themselves because suddenly so many of us as, as sort of white collar workers, as professional workers, were forced to work from home. And in doing that, particularly even men who were traveling a lot before, I was like, wait a second, I like being around my kids. I like being there for the morning. I like, you know, taking to work. And it's changing the paradigm of, of life. And I, I think we've got to get rid of that work-life balance because life, that whole paradigm is changing between, okay, these hours a day, you're, you're going to work this hour or so, you're going to parent, and then this day, you're going to have some fun. It just, it's all jumbled together. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at the company of dads, obviously to normalize it, but is to take a kind of multi-prong approach. You know, there's the media company component. There's a podcast every week. There's a newsletter. There's a feature. We have what we call one of the most popular ones, the lead dad of the week. We just find a dad who's who's, who's doing this. And they've been to totally normal, uh, regular guys around the, the country on up to this guy, Najee Good, who who won a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles a couple of years back and, you know, sacked some guy named Tom Brady. And he's a lead dad to you know, the, the, the private community where people can, can share, which for men is, is really difficult to do to sort of sh say that I have a, a problem. And then there's a whole, you know, private part of the company dads in which we go in and work with companies and say, look, you, you need to have, you know, better programs. I mean, it's one thing to have paternity leave. Of course, who we won't, we need paternity leave. But if a man puts his hand up and says, you know what? I just got to take an hour on Wednesday and go do something with my son. It's, it's just really important to us that that's okay, that that's not a sign that he's somehow less to work. Because if you're sitting around having a cup of coffee and a cookie for that hour, you you wouldn't really say anything to him. So, so we need to sort of change the expectations and, and change the narrative around working and parenting and, and living. 
Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. You, you mentioned a word that I want to reorient you on and focus is loneliness. I've told a lot of people in my life that I think the biggest challenge for this maturing millennial generation of fathers like myself is, especially once our kids leave the home, the inability to make true friendships is a real problem. And I think this it's going to be endemic, this issue of loneliness amongst 45 to 55 year old guys. Have you seen that within your community as well? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate that again, I'm a weirdo, but because of this super rigid schedule, I've still been able to sort of carve out a Friday as my day to, to play golf. And I belong to a club that's about six minutes from my house. And I'm, I do that. The kids are at school. I, I work it around it. And I have a group of people like that. But to be honest, like my absolute closest friends are three guys I went to high school with, brush school with, you know, 30 plus years ago and my college, you know, roommate. But even, you know, COVID brought us closer together because we all got on these, these Zooms. But I agree with you. What's going to happen is that we're going to devote so much time to work. We're going to devote so much time to parenting. We're going to have fun, hopefully, with our wives and, and, and take nice trips and, and do all that important stuff. But then our kids are going to go off to college and we're going to say, whoa, okay. Not who, who am I? I know who I am. I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, in your case, we're an asset management firm, had two kids, you know, traveled, had a good life. But it's like, where have all the friends gone? Where have all the fun gone? And this is why it's it's so important. One of the, the company of dads, we're starting off a sort of virtual community now just so we can get a critical mass. But so much of the business plan is having a first local, you know, in-person meeting, sort of regional in-person meetings, and then hopefully bring in sponsors to do do national events to, to bring guys together, you know, like we were when we were 17 or, or 18 years old, just to, you know, nothing untoward, like go play golf, go fish, have a couple of beers and and just talk. Yeah, we had, we had a, so I, I went to Wesleyan, we talked about this, with a fellow NESCAC alum, I played the cross there and we had a, a teammate pass away during COVID, during like early lockdown. And we did the Zoom thing and the virtual wake and it was really sad, but the sadder part was we're probably... 20 people on there, 10 of them, I would consider my friends. And I probably hadn't talked to any of them in over 10, 15 years. And those were the people that in my mind, I think of as being close to me. And so kind of like what you're talking about, we like intentionally started, like I went to upstate New York to play in this alumni lacrosse tournament with them this summer. I'm going to F1 race in Austin in a few weeks with some of these guys. I just told my wife, like once a quarter, I just need to carve out some time to to be with these people because I see what my dad's going through. He's 70 and he just was a grinder his whole career, right? Lawyer, corporate guy. And he's retired and he has no friends. I mean, his whole life was devoted to raising us and then the, the, the gig. And then once that closed, he's just a very lonely guy. And I, I just, especially given the fact that we might live to be a hundred, I just don't want that to be my future. Yeah. And there, and look, I'm very research based. And so I, I'm comfortable saying this and it not coming across as, as sexist, but there's research that, you know, moms are much better at having regular bits of community. And if they ask, you know, Hey, can we, 
you know, kind of a mom's weekend or whatever. I mean, that is a, a common phrase. I mean, men need to sort of take that time. And if you have certain, certain hobbies lend itself to that, you know, you, you happen to play a lot of golf, well, you can go on a golf trip. But even then, you, you have to give yourself, you know, license to do that. I'm turning 50 next year and we're talking about this. And I, do I want to do a big blowout? you know, golf trip with my friends. I do. But there's also a part of me that it may be sort of smaller and we may, I may take my girls to Disney because our youngest has never been to, to Disney. And that's, it'll be super fun and rewarding. But we, I feel like we have to give ourselves the license and the ability to, to do that. And in your case, you know, I wrote about this so much at the times in a not related at all time, but in sort of estate planning, most people didn't do any estate planning until somebody close to them died. It took your mate from college, you know, a kid, a guy who certainly was too young to die to pass away for your group to have that wake up call to say, wait a second, we we need to do this and we need to do it. And now what you need is you need a leader. You need a cheerleader who's going to, you almost need like a, another captain of this team who's going to keep you all honest and make sure that if every quarter becomes unsustainable, it's at least, you know, three or four times a year and that these things get planned and whoever can go can go because otherwise you're, you're absolutely right. It just, it falls away. Yeah. It just never becomes a, yeah. So what's the long-term vision for the organization? I mean, you've got a lot going on. I, I encourage people to go to the website. We'll include in the show notes. You mentioned the podcast, these in-person communities. I mean, where do you, where do you see this going kind of pie in the sky? The pie in the sky. I mean, the subtenure vision is to be, you know, the go-to site for all fatherhood questions. And whatever your politics are, you know, I liken it to the sort of CNN model. If you're watching CNN in Nashville, it's very similar to watching CNN in New York where I am. But if you go and watch CNN in Mexico or you watch it in, in Tokyo, you watch it in London, it adapts to that local market. And so our second podcast is going to launch in a couple weeks and it's called the Global Dads Council. And that podcast, I've drawn it together, a group of four or five leaders of fatherhood organizations from, from different countries around the world. And we're going to discuss the sort of, you know, more global issues of, of fatherhood and what, what men are facing. And, and men are facing these, these same crises of, of loneliness and, and identity and in what they're supposed to do as fathers now versus what their own fathers did. You know, those are the same conversations people are having in, in India, in Singapore, in London, as, as we're having here in the U.S. So the pie in the sky is to make this you know, the go-to resource for all fathering information, whether you're a lead dad who's a go-to parent or whether you're a new dad or whether you're a dad who's dipping into this because you want that community and you want to sort of talk to some other guys who are going through what you're going through. Yeah, I've become a, a huge proponent of these affinity peer-to-peer -peer networking and learning organizations, kind of like what you're describing. I'm a big YPO person, you know, similar to, to Tiger in some ways. And, you know, it, it is interesting because like you mentioned, when I travel and I meet another YPO or, and we make that mutual bond, we cut through like 12 minutes of just bullshit yeah. chat and we get right into like, oh, what's your need? What are you dealing with right now? Maybe I can help. Or if you just need to like grab a cup of coffee and I'll listen to you for 20 minutes, we just have that initial affinity establishment right off the bat. And it's just super powerful and effective. So that's great that you're... And it's powerful and effective because YPO has created this, this structure, they've created these expectations, they've created these criteria. And so you have your local small group in which you are going through all kinds of things in which, you know, sometimes, you know, one member has a greater need than, than the other members and, and they help them. And at some point it, it all evens out. And so therefore 
you sort of know what you're getting in a way when you go from the YPO in Nashville to the whatever YPO guy in 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 San Francisco. And and that's the theory behind the company of dads, these sort of the one o- overarching community, but then almost sort of a franchise model for different communities in different towns that that meet your needs. But when you come together, you know, you'll have a you'll have a shared language, you know, just as you know, just as, as college. Like, you know, you you meet some guy who went to to Wesleyan, whatever his his or her year was, you have a you know a shared experience, and just as you know, you and I went to you know NESCAC schools. Well, we know what that means, and that's you know a shared experience. You're, you know, my my wife went to Kentucky. You're you're in Nashville. You know, SEC, huge. You know, and that's a shared experience. And so we have that in other aspects of our lives. Why not have it in you know fatherhood? I mean, again, 120 million men in America are fathers and 40 to 45 million are either, you know, full-time at-home dads or have wives who earn, who out-earn them. And so therefore they are taking on these lead dad responsibilities. It's a different role than other types of fathers. And it's certainly a different role than, than our fathers had. Why not come together and, and share those experiences and make it a little bit easier on ourselves. And given, you know, you, you're a numbers oriented person, given the demographics and this, this, huge shift in assets that are going to come from baby boomers to millennials <clears throat> and a, a large portion that we're going to go to, you know, female led households. Right. And so this is only going to be exacerbated as these baby boomers kind of cycle off and those funds transfer. It reminds me of, I was reading the New York times <clears throat> the other day about the F3 workout craze in, in Texas, in the suburbs, how, you know, it's only for men, they get up early and it's kind of this right. mix of fitness, religion, but, but fatherhood, midlife crisis all yeah. together. And so there's just this huge need for a to carve out the space for people to explore and to be open and vulnerable with their feelings here. But, but what's remarkable is that, you know, again, longtime New York Times writer and, but that is, you know, it's a trend story. It's a trend story. You know, I can imagine how that reporter came to write that story, but that's because that was something unique. If the New York Times would never write a story about women doing a yoga class and then going for a cup of coffee afterwards, they'd be like, what are you talking about? It would totally be laughed out of the news meeting. You're like, you know, big deal. Like there is this moment where there is this workout craze where men want it. We all want to get in better shape. COVID sort of showed it coming out of COVID. I, I think everybody is probably in slightly worse shape, except those super people like Jeff Bezos who are in better shape. But that we want to combine the two and we want to carve out that that space. We want to be the older, wiser version of of who we were in in our 20s. Yeah, it's interesting. This last weekend, we're recording this in early October. It was like all the fall things happening in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. And my kids go to this local private school and we're very socially engaged, at least my wife is. So we had three events yesterday, like fall for this and that and the other. And it was incredibly, I was thinking about this conversation we were going to be having today because I was looking out and it was just the wives introducing the husbands to everybody and the wives are the ones who knew everybody and what was happening. And the men were just kind of just rolling around aimlessly trying to figure out who they knew or didn't know. Women are just so much better at at having these out of work social constructs and community. And they, I'm just was like, she was navigating me through this whole thing. And it was, I, I kind of reflected on the fact that if she wasn't there, I don't know what I would have been lost. It just was really, really profound. It is. It's true. It's, it's, you know, my wife jokes, you know, you know, we talked about golf, like 
you see somebody with a, a logo on their, you know, sweater that reminds you of a chorus you play, and that becomes your your entry. Like, oh, are you a member there? Oh, I played there. And like that's as men we 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 look for that. You know, I'll tell you, sir, I was three daughters. And I don't know if, if I, I don't know if I'm bragging about this or not or, or, or looking for sympathy, but this is the fourth time that I am a class parent. And every time it is as if I've done something remarkable. They're like, thank you so much for being a class parent. I was like, this is why I'm trying to change the narrative. It is not really all that hard. And to be honest, the, so much benefit accrues to the parent who does it because you actually get to spend more time in your child's classroom seeing what they're doing. And it's not that onerous. It's not like you're, th you're, you're there like once a month for an hour and you get to see the joy on your child's face. And this is for my kindergartner, so it's even more joyful. But it's, you know, I'd encourage men to, to do that. Like there's nothing feminine about this role. It's literally sending emails, collecting money, and buying shit. That's all you do. And then, you know, the teacher doesn't let you screw it up. But in doing that, you get to see your, your kids, you get to see the joy on their face. And then, you know, when I've done it, you, you connect with usually with the mom who's doing it. But then, you know, what does she do? She goes home and tells her husband. And then at the next party, you, you got a lot more guys, you know, talking to each other by just putting yourself out there a little bit. Yeah, it's this, it's this, hopefully the narrative will change and shift because I agree with you. I've been trying to be more engaged in my children's school, but, and we go to a, my kids go to a very well, at least for Tennessee, Nashville, a very progressive, liberal type oriented place. And many of the parents are dual income, but even still the class parent is always, always a mom for my fourth grader and my first grader. And so it is funny how these like cultural narratives get imprinted upon these institutions. And it's really hard to push back, even when people think that they're being open-minded and, and, you know, progressive on some of these subject matters, it can be hard to push back against these generations of ideas. What's been the biggest surprise for you in starting the company? A couple. One is that I don't miss being a journalist. Everyone always asks me that. Do you miss the New York Times? I said, I love the New York Times. I loved every moment about it, but I don't miss it. And the biggest surprise is the more I talk about this, the more men I find who wouldn't have identified and identified as, as the dads or wanted to be part of this group. And that's been a surprise it's been rewarding. Like that was the theory. That's why I did this. I, you know, I did the research. I had the data. I say, like, you know, 40 million people, man, you got to get, you know, get a good chunk of that and, and you're off to the races. But it's really like the more people that hear about this, you know, the more they, they like it and they crave it. And the more people sort of come to me and like, can I contribute or can I do this? And so that's the surprise may run, but it's been really validating because I'm like, okay, I thought there was a need here and now I'm seeing that there there really is a need here. And these are guys from all all over the country, all walks of life, not, you know, wealthy people, moderate income people and 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 people, you know, our hourly working people. So it's just a range and that's I think been super validating that it's just not one niche of of a parent. Paul, this has been awesome. I want to thank you for coming on and I really encourage people to check out the work you're doing within your new company community of dads, and then definitely go back and read some of the columns and, and the books. It's a question I ask people who come on the show, given everything you have going on in your life, you've got the startup, this community, you're a dad, obviously three daughters. What is something you do every day that helps kind of bring you peace within your own life? I stay up one hour after everybody in my house has gone to bed. And sometimes I read. Sometimes I have a glass of wine or a cup of tea. Sometimes I respond to emails. Sometimes I watch, you know, Sports Center or, or Golf Channel. But I just get that 
that hour. And, and almost always I have one of our dogs sitting with me on the couch and I just have that, that hour. And I'm like, okay, the day is, is done. And then I walk up and, and I go to bed and it's, it's essential. Cause I used to try to do it in the morning. I used to try to get up before my kids, but that's impossible because, you know, a five-year-old is, you know, maybe she gets up at 7.30, maybe she gets up at, at 6.30 and it just it just doesn't work. And I know it's guaranteed that I get that hour to just sort of think and, and be to myself every day. I love it. It's always interesting to hear what people do. It's always a different answer, but the trends are always very similar. Well, thank you again for coming on. It's been awesome. If people are interested in connecting with you to learn more about the company of dads, the podcast, the content, the community you're building, what's the best way for them to yeah, learn to more? It. Two ways. Go, go to the website, thecompanyofdads.com, or email me directly at paul at thecompanyofdads.com. I'd, I'd love to hear from anybody. Awesome. Paul, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. And best of luck with the company of dads moving forward. Thanks so much. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you today. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.